Welcome everyone to the Rating Others Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm really excited to be back with this fifth episode of the podcast. This episode actually came out a week early. Usually I wait two weeks before putting out a new episode, but I really wanted to put this one out now for a bunch of reasons. Uh, This is the second interview that I'm presenting from the live interviews that I did at this past Klez Canada back in August. It's a really good one. It features ethnomusicologist and klezmer historian Mark Sloban. Mark has been a faculty member at Wesleyan University for a really long time and is really important in the field of research when it comes to Yiddish and klezmer music. Uh, I get into more about him in my introduction from Klez Canada, so I'll let that speak for itself. The main reason I wanted to release this this week is that I had a chance to remind you all that this Sunday, October 22nd at 7 p.m. in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Ethical Society, I'm having a CD launch and klezmer dance party for my new CD, Radiant Others, that I've talked about a lot on the show. So I wanted to make sure to give you all a chance to know about that and hope that if you're in the Philly area or anywhere close by that you can come. So that's, again, that's Sunday night. That's, uh, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out or a couple days after. So October 22nd at the Ethical Society in Philadelphia in Rittenhouse Square. I hope to see you there. That's it from me today. For now, check out old episodes. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, share it on social media or with your friends. You can also still buy the Radiant Other CD at Bandcamp or through my website. So let's go back to Close Canada and hear my conversation with Mark Sloban. Welcome, everybody, to Radiant Others, a Klezmer music podcast live at Klez Canada 2017. Exactly. <laughs> My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm excited to present these interviews to all here at Klez Canada and to everyone who's tuning in from around the world. Today, we've got on the show ethnomusicologist and Klezmer historian Mark Sloban. Mark has written extensively on the subject of Eastern European Jewish music and klezmer music, as well as the music of Afghanistan, where he conducted research beginning in 1967. He is a professor of music and American studies at Wesleyan University. He is the author of many books on Eastern European Jewish music, including Tenement Songs, Chosen Voices, and Fiddler on the Move, and the editor of Berigovsky's work. His 1984 klezmer article, Klezmer Music, an American ethnic genre was actually very helpful to me when I was trying to construct a broader framework about and asking questions of the history of klezmer music in America. Please give a big Klez Canada welcome to Mark Slobin. So hi Mark, thanks hey, for doing this. Hey, glad to this. be here. This is great. It's my first time at Klez Canada and I'm uh, suitably impressed by everything. Awesome. So my question, first question is, when did you first hear the word klezmer, and what did it mean to you at the time? Um, the word klezmer was not used. Um, I grew up never hearing the word, uh, although I grew up in a, in a Yiddish uh, kind of background with immigrant people. Nobody used the word ever. Uh, and I didn't hear about it till probably um, the mid-70s, you know, when it all started. And uh, then I thought, what, is, what are these people talking about? The first time I ran into anybody who uh, was really seriously interested in what we're calling the revival was 1974. I was out in um, San Francisco, um, and I, I stopped by the Judah Magnus Museum in Berkeley. And in the, uh, a guy was showing me around the Magnus Museum, and uh, some kid, and he said, um, you know what they have here that are amazing? They have all these 78 records. They have this amazing music. I don't know why people don't know about it. And that kid was Lev Lieberman, uh, who then founded the Klezmorum, who put out the uh, very first album, so uh, two years later. So I think that's the first time somebody even um, kind of mentioned that to me. I had just gotten to YIVO after my work in Afghanistan uh, in 1973. And uh, so I became aware of the instrumental uh, side of the Yiddish tradition, which um, uh, began to be in the air, you know, in various ways that we can talk about. But it's all right around that period of uh, 74, 75, and then um, 
you know, 76, um, that it unfolds. But nobody could tell me, uh, I, I mean, I asked what is a klezmer, and they said it's a, it's a person. But then everywhere I began to see this thing, klezmer music, which I helped introduce. Uh, Zev Feldman and I, I think, are the first people to use the word in print. Uh, because nobody knew what to call what these people were playing, what was on the 78s, or what they had learned from the couple of old musicians like Dave Terrace. Um, it wasn't clear what to call it, so we said, well, what people are calling klezmer music, because that's not a word in Yiddish. Uh, there's no such thing as klezmer music. Uh, so, yeah, I'm partly responsible in a way, as you say, and, they, and, and by 84 I wrote a more academic piece, you know, kind of trying to define it as an American revival genre. So when you grew up, you had a lot of this kind of, which part of the sort of Yiddish umbrella sound world did you right, have growing up? Right. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit. Um, my father actually was born in Detroit. And his mother was born in New York in 1890. So on that side, I'm a third generation Yankee. On my mother's side, though, she came in 1922. Um, uh, she grew up in Uman, and then they became refugees uh, in the, all the upsets of the late uh, teens and uh, got to America only in 22 after being refugees in Kishinev in Moldova. Um, so there were a lot of older relatives. Um, my mother talked Yiddish to her mother. Um, there was a lot of Yiddish in the house. Uh, so I kind of, you know, had it around. Um, but there were no klezmer bands in Detroit. It was not a city with any klezmer. And I've asked people like Hankus, you know, Netsky who know everything. I mean, Milwaukee had bands even, places that were smaller than Detroit. Mm. Detroit did not have a klezmer tradition. They did have Jewish tunes, as they would call them, Jewish tunes at the weddings, maybe. Uh, and my mother would talk about in the 20s, 30s, you would dance to share at a wedding. But nobody used the word klezmer um, at all. So um, I began, yeah, with the 78s, like everybody else, like, what is this, what is this stuff? And people were throwing out the 78s then um, in a place like Detroit and elsewhere. The first time people moved, they kept the old records and the old sheet music. The second time they moved, they said, why do we still have this? <laughs> you know, so uh, you had to catch them before the second move, kind of. <laughs> so I began to start collecting and listening and, you know, tuning in. To, to this music around that, that period. But um, there was a lot of Yiddish songs, but there were Russian songs, and, and there were Hebrew songs, and there was Gilbert and Sullivan, and there was all kinds of music in the household. Uh, I grew up playing the violin because I was a good Jewish boy, and you had to fiddle, and it was mostly classical music, you know. But when we drove in endless long summer trips, um, you would hear these songs. Yeah, like My Yiddish yeah. Mama or no, more No, older things. Margarita Lachlezele, Zolzain, the kind of Arum Dem Fayo, things that are from a 20s, 30s um, sensibility of Americanizing immigrants who are uh, singing a lot, of, a lot of songs like that, I would say. Cool. And you talked about becoming a collector. Was that something that you were already doing? Like, were you collecting other kinds of music on 78 or other? Or even were you just into current music at the time you were growing up and buying lots of records? Or Well, I mean, it was all classical. So we had endless classical albums. And uh, But I was very attracted by these 78s and the sound of that old music. It was, you know, it was... I wanted to know more about it. And uh, so if you hung around Evo... Um, then, you know, Capella started, and, right. um, and there's Alpert, and, you know, there are these other people. Uh, and I remember the landmark moment when, because uh, Yiva was on what they call a museum mile in New York, which is, you know, all these means, the Metropolitan Museum, the Guggenheim, and once a year they have an outdoor festival. And um, for the first time that year, wait, now what year was it? Uh, I should know. Um, they played. Um, Yivo, Yivo, being on Museum Mile, had Capella play in front. And this was revolutionary. Wow. Yeah, sure. Like, wow, that music, what is that, and what's it doing on Fifth Avenue? You yeah, know. It's a super high-profile yeah. venue for this yeah. stuff kind of right away, right? Yeah, so that was a nice, that was a nice moment. Um, the big turning point, um, really, for my consciousness and in my involvement, was um, 78. Um, and this has to do with Ethel Rehm and uh, Marty Koenig and the uh, Balkan Arts Center, which became the ethnic... Uh, folk art center and is now the center for traditional music and dance. Yep. 
Uh, Ethel, who comes from a pure Yiddish tradition and is a beautiful folk singer, um, staged a concert at the famous concert at Casa Galicia, uh, which is an old Union Hall and Spanish uh, ethnic gathering place in 1978. And everybody who was anybody remembers being there at Casa Galicia for the Dave Terrace event. Right. So I was there, and uh, it was pretty extraordinary because you never heard these things. Um, they brought out Fagel Yudin, who was a, a friend of Ethel's, also living in the, in the old garment workers' uh, housing. I talked to her later, hmm. uh, who sang pure, unaccompanied Yiddish folk song, which nobody ever heard at that point, except for Ruth Rubin. Uh, and people were a little uneasy, like, well, what is this? This is sort of interesting, maybe. Uh, and then Dave Terrace, um, uh, there was Zeb Feldman and Andy Statman, and people were a little also, what is this? Who are these kids? You know. Uh, and then Dave came out, and a lot of people recognized him, but nobody, there were people who hadn't heard him for decades. Uh, and so he did a doina, and everybody, as I recall it, everybody has different memories. Although there is a tape now, you can go back. Yeah, um, and the video of the concert's also and the video on YouTube. The, yeah, and as I, as I felt it at the time, and I may be wrong, he played the doina and was kind of polite, Polite, but then he went into something like by Mirbus to Shane, and the the roof came, um, you know, the house came down. Uh -huh. The roof uh -huh. came. That's what people wanted to hear. Of course. So, um, and then there was dancing, uh, but nobody knew how to dance. After that, Ethel put in for a grant from National Endowment for the Arts and got the grant. And the grant was to put Dave Terrace on tour somewhere. It wasn't clear where you put him on tour because it was, there were no venues for this music. Right. Uh, but if you got a grant from NEA, NEA Folk Arts Division, you had to have an academic front man, you had to have a presenter who would explain to the audience, this music you're about to hear something or other. So they chose me to be the academic front man. So I was on the first uh, Dave Terrace tour. And uh, that was really exciting and curious. Uh, it was Dave and uh, bass player Marty Confurious and um, the old drummer whose name I'm now blocking. And so they didn't know where to go. So they said, um, Co-op City. Let's go to Co-op City, where all the Jews are that got displaced by building the Cross Bronx Expressway. Uh, Robert Moses' favorite, famous moment. I had never been to Co-op City, and I've never been there since. <laughs> so we drive into Co-op City. It's this vast space of high-rises. And we went to the recreation hall, which was a huge, low-ceiling hall. Very kind of low-ceiling and, and enormous. There were like 1,500 people there, and all of whom shorter than me even, you know, who remembered Dave. Yeah. And he played, and there, it was... It was like this revelation that there were the, these were people who really, and they came up that you remember you played our wedding in 1937 you know, or 1949. You played, and you say, yes, yes, that's very nice, you know. And what um, year is this that so you're this doing this? So this is 78. 78. Um, yeah, so that was an opening. We went to a big JCC in uh, Jersey again, and they thought they put us in some little social hall, and then people came in, people came. They had to move it to a bigger hall, and they were surprised. Why are people coming to hear this obscure music? Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, what was the third place? Oh, God, now I'm blocking. We went somewhere else. Um, but what became clear after that tour was there really was an audience for this. There were people who were hungry for it. It was still kind of thought that they were these older people who were nostalgic, or who remembered it. And only slowly became clear there were younger people who thought this was cool and hip. Um, and then they began to understand the idea of college campuses and other places, but there were no real venues. Um, Zev and uh, Zev Feldman and Andy Statman did their purest album, um, which was also a revelation that you could play this music with just a clarinet and a cymbal. Nobody had heard a cymbal on a stage in, I don't know, 40 years probably, yeah. at least. Um, yeah, at least. So that was an opening in one direction. So what became clear was that this was going to unfold. I mean, like clear was, to you, right? It was this something is... that it was going to unfold. It was something that was going to expand. It was something that it was happening. Yeah. So you had the... And then I heard about Hank Snetsky and the Klezmer Conservatory Band, 
Uh, but that's not till 80, 81. Right. So in the 70s, it was very small, uh, a small circle, a small uh, set of people, and I got to know them. Henry Saposnik was at YIVO. Um, Alicia Spiegels was working at YIVO, you know. They were, the, the building was a hub for uh, all of Yiddish culture, and uh, so it was a natural where you could go to the archives, and uh -huh. you could dig up the stuff, and you could talk to people who knew where this came from, and, you know, there was sort of a, a space, uh, a cultural space. to see the pattern with Henry, with Lauren, you know, with all these people, mm. that people started with something else and they felt at this moment that this was something they could claim. Now, why, as an, as an academic, then I want to know why this moment and yeah. what is going on here. Well, 1976 is this watershed in American culture called the Bicentennial Era. The Bicentennial was really, really important in 1976 because Jimmy Carter was the president. People reviled Jimmy Carter now for not always very good reasons. But he was the first president who was a Southerner and who said, we have to forget all that. And there is more to this country than that. Um, and we need to celebrate some kind of diversity here. And it became government, official government policy to invent the idea of cultural diversity, which began to be called multiculturalism later. Now, this is tied into the change in the immigration law in 1965, which opened up immigration for the first time in 40 years. Right. So people were coming to America who were really, really different, and they started to come in large numbers. And you had had the black power movement um, and the civil rights movement where blacks were claiming cultural independence, Black is beautiful. This really upset white America deeply, and it particularly upset white ethnics, because mm. blacks were supposed to be beneath them, and that's how they behaved, and they controlled them. And these blacks were saying, we don't care what you people think of us. We're black, and we're proud, and we're going to say it out loud, and black is beautiful. So um, ethnicity was invented as a project. Uh, and this is an interesting project in which the Jews were co-conspirators. There were some Jewish people who helped organize umbrella meetings of Poles and Ukrainians and other people they didn't necessarily get along with, saying, we're all proud. We're all proud here, right? And it was a way for Jews to make a different claim about being white ethnics, uh, because they had just become white ethnics for the first time in the history of humanity. The Jews were majority white people in America. So under this banner, um, they began to celebrate ethnicity. Now, the generation we're talking about then, who were in their 20s and 30s then, uh, in the mid-70s, didn't have this experience. They didn't know about this. They smelled it. They liked it. They got it because they were 60s people. Yeah. And they were into openness and cultural expression. And they had been doing every music America offers. They had been playing the banjo in bluegrass bands. Yes, I don't have to give you the names, but you know. So, you know, Saposnik from bluegrass and, and Statman from bluegrass. And um, uh, Hank is essentially from jazz and what was third stream, a blend of jazz and classical. Uh, many people from Balkan, uh, the Klezmorum were all, starts and all started in Balkan and in Berkeley, uh, but people like Lauren Brody as well. Uh, many, many people who had been in Balkan, um, and old-timey, you know, what we call old-timey now, folk music, the folk revival. Yeah. Uh, many people in that tradition. So all of these people began to notice there was something they had totally never heard about. 
It's like Lev Lieberman saying, what are these 78s? Nobody told me we have music too. Now you found, so here was this moment where, oh, there are sources, there are actually, and then Zev and Andy and, um, and uh, uh, others find David, Dave Terrace, and uh, he's still alive, and they go to him and he says, why do you want to learn this music, it's dead. Yeah, they had to really talk him into it. He did not want to teach them. It's like, what? What is this stuff? We stopped doing that. Because Klezmer became an insult um, on the uh, musician circuit. Mm -hmm. By the 1930s, Klezmer was kind of an insult. It meant you didn't read music and you didn't know how to do arrangements. Yeah. Uh, you were just a Klezmer. You weren't a musician. Um, so the words had disappeared. And, and why would anybody want to be a Klezmer? That's like the worst level, lowest level. So. It turned around. It became a um, a term of praise, you know, or a term of authority, a certain kind of cultural authority, which people wanted to claim. It's partly the bicentennial ethnic diversity, um, multicultural, multiculturalism. Um, it's partly the Jews being white folks. Um, it was the right time, and it was a period where the immigrant period could sort of still be a little bit reconstructed through older survivors, older people, and I call them survivors, but people who had grown up or who still knew who could be that audience at Co-op City, who yeah. gave it another angle, you know, who were kind of supportive of the project of bringing this back. So I think one, the two things that pop out to me really strongly is A, and I think this ties into what you're saying about the bicentennial, is that this music was given a high profile very fast yeah. and very strongly. And you had these people who formed a band, and suddenly they're playing on Fifth Avenue, you know, like a year later or something like that. That's pretty right. wild. Right. And then um, the other thing is that people were really finding a different way to be Jewish and, ah, and, and yes. this is a whole thing, but I actually want then we can go to, to talk about that in, in terms Jewry. of yourself. The evolution of American Jewry. Yeah, yeah, but so in yeah. terms of yourself, was that an issue or was that part no, of your story? No, not at all. I grew up very secular. Um, I mean, we did all the holidays and, and things like that. I lived in a Jewish enclave. So you didn't have to think about being Jewish. You were Jewish. You lived only among Jews. People, the old timers spoke Yiddish. Um, you celebrated the holidays. My parents didn't belong to a synagogue even, but it sort of didn't matter because you were deeply Jewish anyway. So I wasn't sort of looking. I mean, that was just part in my bones uh, yeah. in a certain way. Other people were who had been suburbanized and whatever were maybe looking for some kind of roots. But what happened, so now we get to the internal dynamics of Jewish community in America, right. which is another side. I've given you kind of the external trappings of the American story uh, and how the American... America produced a moment yeah. which was favorable. The Jewish community, having become white folks, uh, and now living in suburbs and not in enclaves like myself, uh, like, like I grew up in, uh, everybody had scattered. And that happened, um, you know, early 50s, mid 50s. Uh, the, the old neighborhoods broke up. Uh, in Detroit, it was pretty severe. They, people just f scattered, and they never lived in one center again. So. People were maybe temple members, and uh, kids are going to Jewish summer camp, and Israel was created when I was very small. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea of identity shifts over to we're, we're, the, you know, we're the supporters of Israel. Did you feel pressure uh, to do that? It just happened. You put money in a box for trees in Israel. You know, I remember kind of, that even growing right, up. And, yeah. and they had relatives from Israel that came to visit who had been pioneers. You know, it was sort of, it was just a thing there. And then there was the unspoken, not completely unspoken, but underplayed Holocaust. You feel like that was underplayed? Uh, um, there, Hasia Diner, the historian, has written a whole book to explode the idea that the American Jews in the post-war period did not commemorate the Holocaust. And I have to believe it because Hasi has all the facts and figures. I still remember it was not much talked about. Um, but anyway, what were we going to do about it? So we being the survivors, it was, the, the word Holocaust didn't exist. It was called the camps. Uh -huh. There was the camps. That was it. There was no such official word. There was no official organizations. There were no museums. So it was, in a sense, word of mouth, so to speak. And some commemorative things that would happen here and there. But there was no 
organizational structure for it, which only happened in the 70s and 80s, so uh, later in the game. Right, like a lot of friends right. of mine who are young and maybe on the left side of things talk about inherited trauma and stuff like that, but it was a very different experience for you because it was sort of not even existed. Yeah, I think it was somewhat repressed. It's still my theory. Uh, it's possible. Steiner, notwithstanding. Possible. But, um, but no, there... Okay, so that was the past. We were totally cut off from our European roots in yeah. some way, and there had been no immigration for 40 years. So, the, you know, you don't get young people in who are Yiddish speakers. So if you had been to Hebrew school or you were going to Israel, maybe you had this identity. But people were, yes, to answer your question, people were looking for um, an affiliation that wasn't about Zionism, right. that wasn't about Hebrew texts and Lane and Gomorrah, you know, and... It wasn't about learning in Judaica, and where you didn't have to, you didn't have to know languages, and you could just have a good time. And there's Klezmer, just it's on instrumental time. music just pops just up on time, and it's exciting and interesting because partly because it's eclectic, because it it's not Jewish, you know, because you could have Don Byron fronting a band, you know, yeah. as the clarinetist. Um, this is sort of not your grandmother's Jewishness. It's a, it's a hipper, <laughs> it's a hip version. It's a place you could also place a certain hipster mentality at that point. Well, it wasn't hip back in the day. It was, yeah. it was pretty right. no, staid. No. no, but you can reinterpret it, and that's what revivals do. They, Ab oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So we should talk a little bit I mean, there weren't any revivals. women in it, and then you got all these women going into it. Right, this, there right? were definitely no women. Right. I mean, yeah. there was, there, what, there's a couple recordings of women folk singers, and there was obviously Molly Pecan and stars like that, and then you had... That, that, that's uh, Second Avenue. And then you had, that's Second Avenue. That's okay. another ballgame. But, yeah. but, but, but to me, when I got into this, all this stuff was mashed up together, and it was just under this umbrella of klezmer. Right. And I think for a lot of people nowadays, the, the word klezmer actually has overwhelmed all the other kind oh, yeah. of subgenres yeah. like Yiddish theater or even Yiddish folk song. And it took me years of being in a scene like this oh, to start to see that's like the divisions and realize that someone like Bela Schechter Gottesman doesn't have any interest, didn't have any interest in Dave Tarras, right? right? And I just thought, oh, well, I play this music with these people and I play this music with these people. And the no. other thing that was interesting yeah. about me is that I'd, I grew up with a pretty standard conservative Jewish background, maybe a little bit to the left of mainstream conservatives in the 80s and 90s. And, but when I first heard Klezmer, I just felt like I was home. Okay. And there was maybe, there yeah. was something, you know, we could talk about, we don't have enough time to get into my psychology, but something about feeling othered in my own community and not having, you know, having oh, some troubles in okay. childhood, but right. finding this as a new expression. So and that would be later, because it was already there for you. Yeah, yeah it was We're totally talking about the period where it's just being... Um, so look, the, let, me, let me give you an example of how the, the, the distance that these Jewish Americans had from the old country, which had to be called, like, the old country. Um, in 1962, I was still around Detroit. I, I was at University of Michigan as an undergrad. And I come back to Detroit, and people are talking about a new show, that's gonna, a musical that's going to be staged uh, at the Fisher Theater, which was the premiere. And they say, it's a play. I don't know. It's about the shtetl. I mean, why do people want to go to see a play? I don't know. Is this going to look good, like, to see a shtetl on stage? Why are they doing this? Well, that was Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, right. But their sort of first response was, Oh, is this good? You know, do we want to look like that? And what is that about? Um, so that 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 generation had really kind of closed a certain chapter uh, about the old world, and it had moved on, and they weren't really, you know, interested in in a lot of ways.
when you're talking about all these things were kind of smooshed together in your mind, that wasn't the case at the beginning of the revival. Um, you had the purists, uh, Feldman and Statman and so forth, who really uh, wanted to only to do that and had no possible interest in Second Avenue and, uh, and any other kind of entertainments that were Yiddish. Then you had the really importance of Hankus Natsky was for him to say, this is Jewish American music. Mm. I grew up as an American. All my family were all klezmers in Philadelphia. But, um, but the music that I you know, do is big band kind of music or jazz-oriented music or something that's much more American. And I s recognize that strand. So we're going to do this Yiddish Renaissance. I mean, this the right, you know, tomorrow, whatever. Yeah. We're going to reconstruct that first album. That first album I just blew me away because I thought this was old world music. And here this guy does Lieutenant Joseph Frankel's Yiddish Blues, which is a ragtime with a flat-out huge band playing a ragtime piece. And this is Jewish-American music. And it's somehow, hey, this is Klezmer too. Um, so that's a different input yes. uh, than the, uh, this is European, Balkan, whatever, or this is folk revival extension of Americana. Mm -hmm. um, here's a guy who says, no, all the early recordings are American bands. Let me tell you about Harry Candle. He was assistant for John Philip Sousa. You know, these guys were in the Philadelphia Symphony. You know, so he brought in this entire different uh, outlook which said this was not isolated old world music had died with you know the last person who had to dance the, the you know the share. Um, this was actually developed in America, and the recordings you're listening to, they're actually American music in ways that then Zev Feldman in his article, which is not till 1996, I think, two or 92. Um, which one are you talking about? It's fairly early. The Bogar album. Yeah, maybe it's Bogar albums. Like the uh, article in Ethnomusicology is the first one to say, you know, these Bogars you're all listening to. It's not the way they did it in the, in Europe. This is listen to what's going on. It's this is an American genre, you know, Americanized right. genre. That was a a, a news. Um, and then for for Hankus to have Judy Bressler get up and sing, you know, Romania, Romania, and so forth. This was sticking, a, you know, a different thing into the mix and saying no. And and so that's how you eventually get the idea. Well, yeah, it's all sort of klezmer, but it was absolutely. That word was not used to that music ever. So how about you? Where where were your agendas as an academic or just as a person, like in this time, maybe in the early 80s, that led you to come up with this idea? I remember reading about how this idea of a klezmer revival was already even around maybe in the early 80s, right? And so then you're like sort of, this is not revival, yeah. something, revitalization. Right, right. And so, but where were yeah. your, what struck you and where did you feel like you okay. were getting your kicks in? My My roots for doing this came in the great efflorescence of folklore uh, as a discipline in America, where people were looking at America. See, I became an Americanist after being an, an, uh, an Orientalist. I was an Orientalist my whole early career. And then I decided I, I was going to be an, Ameri an Americanist. Why did I do that? Because I had been working with these Afghans and trying to explain that. And I did all the first publication on anything connected to Afghanistan and Central Asia. And I was exhausted from the effort. I was a junior faculty. I was tired, and I was really tired of hitting my head against the wall trying to understand Afghans. It's really, really hard to understand Afghans. You know, you do your best, and I realized if I did this for 20, 30 years, I'd get a little into their minds, and I'd really find out what they're doing. But right now, I'm really tired. And what would it be like, I said to myself, to study something that you're an insider to? which nobody was doing in ethnomusicology yet. Uh -huh. And nobody was barely doing in anthropology. It was uh -huh. not a movement to do to do your own, your own tradition, to study it. That was like actually not allowed. It was, it, that wasn't science, that wasn't work, you had to go somewhere else. So I said, I don't know, I, what do I know? I know Yiddish, so I, that's how I walked into YIVO, due to Barbara Kersenvlad Gimblet, whose role has to be brought in always in the, as an activist in a very important moment in the beginning of all this. Yes. Barbara was extremely important in her academic and her openness and her umbrella approach to getting everybody engaged with sources and thinking through issues intellectually and with some say ho. I mean, Barbara's really important because she's the only one of the whole academic crowd who actually wrote her dissertation on Yiddish topics. Everybody else like me came to it later having done something else. Barbara wrote a dissertation on the use of metaphor and parable in her uh, family and circle in Toronto, 
in Toronto. So she was and really a pioneer she in was, yeah. studying yourself. And, but she was a pioneer in folklore studies. She worked at all the best places, and she invented performance studies. I mean, was brought in to develop performance studies at NYU. And everybody came to Barbara for advice, and everybody kind of learned from her. She's an extraordinary seminal figure who's like completely behind, you know, in a sense, behind the curtain. You know. So Barbara said, go to Givo, and I'll, I'll meet you there. So I, I walked into this building, and I was just knocked out. I mean, it was extraordinary. Uh, everything in this building had to do with the Yiddish culture, and everybody in the building knew about it. And the archives were there. So that's how, I, once I walked into that, they all said, nobody's working on the music. Thank God you're here. Because nobody was. There was nobody working on the sources. Um, Hannah Mlotek was around, of course, and doing her work. But there were no younger academics, and um, everybody was very happy to, to see me there. So I said, what do they do? What's going on here? And as I explained this morning, I discovered this sheet music, and I said, this is phenomenal. This is American Jewish music. It existed. An entire industry of hundreds and hundreds of pieces of sheet music of publishers on the Lower East Side, and it's, the music is unbelievable. The texts are totally surprising and, and exciting. I think I'll work on this. So um, now, the, so I, at that point, through people like Barbara, and uh, I discovered that uh, folklore studies was really taking off. There was a whole bunch of really intelligent people, and that's what I learned from what I did this morning, or I did in Tenement, so I was looking at the images and doing iconographic studies, for example, because they were doing that in folklore. They were looking at record jackets. Mm. Um, and they were saying, why is this like this? Why are those early record jackets of old time music? Uh, what are they telling us on the publications? What are the catalogs, the, the Columbia catalogs about? Um, where were the recordings? What is the archival discographic histories? There were people doing this for the first time for actual real American white music and doing it for ethnic music in America, particularly Richard Spotswood, who put out the discography of American ethnic music. Before that, you had no idea what ethnic recordings there were in America. You literally didn't, because it was all in some archive at Columbia Records. And he went there and he convinced them to let him snoop around and he produced this multi-volume thing where you can start with A for Albanian and Armenian and run through, I don't know, Zulu at the end, and you will get every uh, ethnic recording that was done between 1914 and 1932 indexed, including all the Yiddish stuff. It turns out there's a lot of them, right? It's massive. There were thousands of these things. It was, an un, it was a lost continent. It was the Atlantis of music research. And Dick came up with all that, and we were all looking at it. And then Dick says, I got them to let me look at who got paid huh. for the session. Because who's on the label is not who got paid for the session. Huh. So when you're looking at a at Ukrainian orchestra, or you're looking at Greek orchestra, Abe Schwartz is getting paid for all of them, okay? And his band members. <laughs> so began to realize what Klezmer had meant. It meant you could play everything really, really well. And you could play everybody's music, and you could make a living at Columbia, you know, or a little money at Columbia Record. This was a revelation for us about America, and American music, and how it worked. It's not a bunch of little enclaves. It's a bunch of people listening to each other, uh, and, and, and trading things. And the methodologies were that were emerging then were so effective that it just completely, I, I get it, I can do this, this is, I, I get this, you know, I can work on it. Hmm. I think that's really amazing and it definitely makes me feel connected and kind of connects a lot of things about the diversity of a place like Close Canada where you do have so many different kinds of sounds or different kinds of approaches all happening within yeah. Klezmer. And I think that's the a thing that kind of changed a little bit. That's a beautiful thing. I think the thing that changed a little bit in my perspective from the old recordings to now is that back in the day, A, the idea of being a capital A artist playing anything other than classical music or composing anything other than classical music didn't really exist very strongly and is much stronger now. But the other thing is that um, these guys were good at a lot of different kinds of music, but yeah. like things that had, were vernacular or at least had some level of 
uh, define, defined boundaries like right. Greek music or right. Armenian music or, or Jewish music. And these guys could sort of switch between because all these different things. Because those two categories are artificial. I mean, you have the same tunes are played by, every, by a lot of these groups. So uh, what you discover is I found the word eclectic, and I used it in that article. I said, this is an eclectic instrumental you know, music, which is, uh, and then I said, and that's the way it's always been. Mm. There was no pure moment in Eastern Europe when Jews played Jewish music, and that was it. Never happened, never existed. They were swapping tunes with other people. They were playing for other audiences. And then people like Sam Feldman particularly start theorizing that. There's a core repertoire. There's a co-territorial shared repertoire. There's, you know, you begin to see how complex that world was, and then they began to talk to the actual people who, and then Dave Terrace, who played with this one and that one. And then uh, they discovered, um, oh God, I'm completely blocking, um, the old fiddler. Oh, Yerma Heschelis. No, 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 not Heschelis, the... Um, oh, Leon Schwartz. Le yeah, they discovered Leon Schwartz, and that was the first violinist they found. And I'm being a fiddler, I was like, oh my God, they finally found a violinist. And Leon Schwartz is amazing, but he had a classical training, he played with Roma people, he was, you know, it was completely, you could see how complex, and, and that is, now, what happens though, once you create a revival, the, we have a lot of stuff, there's a lot of theorizing about the word revival in ethnomusicology. Oh, is that so? There's yeah. the Oxford Handbook of Revival uh, Studies, Folk Music Revival, okay. and there they uh, had to write, really there's an excellent introduction there about what do we mean by revival, because it's a sloppy word. Uh, and it got used too many ways, and we've kind of made it more precise. The moment we're talking about was a revival in the sense, in, in, the, in the technical sense. There's a group of enthusiasts who are reclaiming a tradition, et cetera, et cetera. Once they do their work off a canon of materials that they have selected and so forth and create some outlets for it, that happens among Lithuanians, that happens among all kinds of groups. There's a revival moment. After that, they start teaching other people, Quest Campus invented, and, and then they start teaching other people, and it stops being a revival. The revival then becomes the canon. So these are the tunes you learn. Yes, you must start with a doina, and this is how you do this, and that's the way you create a kratz, and um, it becomes its own canon. Um, and then you have to get beyond that then to, well, wait a minute, we could break this up in other ways completely. So the history of the institutionalization of this music which is now being studied and various graduate students have been working on it. Oh, I just talked good. to one today uh, who are studying what happened with Clause Camp, Clause Canada, uh, London, Weimar, uh, and, and uh, how do these things, you know, how does that create a, a movement which is then completely different than a revival? Well, I think that's uh, really, it's a really good point because I, I come from what I think is more or less the first generation of people who are young enough that's right. to, you're, you're right. to have right. come of age in the music. Right. So we're not right. the first generation of people. I think of people like Christian David or uh, people who are, I guess, around 50 now right. who uh, could take it on, but then the resources were pretty well established and available. Right. But it was something that he had to take on. I started coming to Clez County. People like Michael Winograd and Jake Schulman right. started coming when they were children. Right. I came as an 18-year-old, which is still pretty young, and so concurrent with me becoming a my study and sort of finishing school or undergrad of being a, becoming a professional musician right. included all of this, and by then the resources right. were extremely well available. Yeah. Thank you. 
about the revival and, and having to claim it. We didn't really have to do a lot of work no, no, to no, do it was, this. It was there for you. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I heard a student, maybe a Wesleyan student, I said, why are you interested in this music? He said, oh, I heard it at home. I said, wow, we're at a point where a kid grows up and goes to college who has heard it at home, you know, as, you know, they, they who's heard the, the revival at home. I mean, right. I thought this is, a, this is the changing point. You know, like, you know, it's not like they have to come to it and discover it. It's... Well, and, and then the, the thing that I've realized recently or been feeling very strongly is the idea of uh, how much sort of tracking all the things that we invented that didn't actually exist in the past. Right. Whether it's actual instrumental technique, I think, I think the way the music is communicated is completely new. That's right. my guess. Just because it's so different from the way other European folk musics, Eastern European folk musics, seem to be communicated. Well, that's because there's no community, there's no homeland for well, there's no, music. Right, but, but we music all have without this a, very, very theorized... A music without a homeland. Right. It's a very, I mean, that's another reason I got so interested in studying this, because it's a special case. It's a special case of a music that falls into the category, and that whole first chapter in Fiddler on the Move is what is a heritage music? How did klezmer become a heritage music? And uh, what does it mean to be a, to have a music that doesn't have a homeland? I mean, if you, I went to Hungary like in 1984. So you go to the, the, the Academy of Sciences up on the hill and they show you the transcriptions that Bartok and Kodai made, which are in locked fireproof uh, cabinets where there had to be two keys so no one person could open it. They were sacred relics. And they say we have, I don't know, 100,000 tunes here and transcriptions and stuff. And anybody wants to learn Hungarian music, you know, now, you know, we never have anything remotely like that because this community was liquidated. It's, the first time I went to Warsaw, it was 1976, I went to the Ethnographic Museum. I said, why do you have this, you know, Yiddish um, music or Yiddish, Yiddish culture? And he just looked at me and he said, this is like the director, he looked at me and said, September 1st, 1939, the first wave of bombs that hit Warsaw um, destroyed the entire Ethnographic Museum and its contents. We don't really have anything here. I said, oh, you know, it's like that, <laughs> oh you know. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but most places you have a homeland. I mean, you're going to go back to Ireland. They're still going to, you can't just mess around. You have to pay your dues and play Irish music, and then you can fool around with it. You know, you go to Hungary, they've got your number, you know. And, I mean, this is true of those European folk music. For Klezmer, it's a phantom. It's a, non, it, it, it's a recreation no matter what, except for the handful of people. So that's why everybody flipped out when German Goldenstein arrived, because he was an actual living native of a tradition who had kept doing it. Right. Like five people, right? <laughs> and we're talking of millions. So whatever we have, Gornished, right? We, we, I mean, we have crumbs from the banquet. And this was very upsetting if you're trying to study. When I first got into this music, I said, how is this possible? There's nothing here to study. There's not enough of it. So that's why I did the Biergovsky edition, because I could read Russian. And, uh, and Hannah Mlatek told me this existed. I looked at it. I said, this isn't available to anybody unless you read Russian. And she said, not that I know of. Okay, mm. okay, I've got to do something here. Yeah, it's so I just felt obligated. I mean, if I could study this, if I could be walking this, I mean, poor Birgowski. It was my job. I had to do this. So I collected, you know, and did that and put out Old Jewish Folk Music in 1982, which turned out to be a kind of Bible for the movement, which uh, was why I did it, so that people would have sources. And uh, so I'm absolutely delighted that that was useful. Uh, yeah, it's been but, very useful. I, uh, and I think even in my time here, which is now, this is my 15th Clez Canada, so I've been doing this since 2002, there's felt like there was new areas being explored. Yeah. And, and, and I think we'll talk about this maybe a little bit closer to the end, but I actually feel like we're in a much more diffuse space now, uh -huh. which is interesting. And I have to well, figure that's out. Good. It, mean. Yeah, <laughs> but it also requires people stepping up and creating things, which okay. also I think is not happening quite at the level it used to because the professional incentive doesn't exist the way it did back in the day. Uh, you know, nowadays I think, and I think personally, and you know, one of the things I want to do in these conversations right. is to help sort of workshop ideas about where we are and where we can oh, go okay, or right. what's interesting. Yeah, that's and I, I personally am feeling very strongly to pulled towards professional development and things like this. But I also, oh, there's so many things to talk about. One thing is just 
thinking about a music without a homeland right. and how so many jazz musicians have sort of found their way into this music. I mean, people from all genres, yeah. Oh, yeah. but there's a relationship or maybe a, an affinity for people with... Um, well, you have these... I mean, the thing evolves, as you say, rather quickly. I mean, between 1976 and 1984, when Jumpin' Night in the Garden of Eden comes out, Here's the first documentary, and there's a documentary film which shows four different klezmer bands at work, and they're already established, and they're on touring networks, and they're on Prairie Home Companion. And that's, as you say, it's a very short time. No, it's really fast. Um, so America was ready for this. Um, now, that boom did fade, ultimately. Yep. It, it was a nice boom while it lasted, but for whatever reason, even the Jewish community kind of lost its initial enthusiasm for this for whatever reasons that aren't, I don't know the history of that, why a kind of certain disinterest crept in or a kind of a moving away from investment in this began to creep in, in the, somewhere in the late 90s. And um, I'm not sure what that's about because I haven't seen anybody who studied it and I haven't really thought it through because I stopped working on Klezmer and these issues after that. But um, it's an interesting question, but that then, really changes the atmosphere. Then, and the other thing is it moves into being a world music uh, or a heritage music, as I said. Um, and that's different. So when something is a world music, this, you know, this commercial term that first started getting used in 1987 by, by the industry, um, a world music has a certain definition. It has to be exotic. It has to be uh, somewhat colorful, it has to have a good beat. And it's better if it comes from an African source, an African, <laughs> some African source. That's what world music is. Uh, but yep. Klezmer fit well enough so that European kids, um, so that's, of course, this is when I saw, the music goes back to what might have been its homeland and never was, Germany. Germany, you know, right. It wasn't a homeland. No. Uh, so uh, you get the uh, importation of a, European, supposedly European music to Europe by Americans, which is again extremely anomalous and not something that makes a whole lot of sense in, in, in music history terms. And that's another thing that I got pretty interested in. Yeah. Um, and I see everybody's going back, you know, suddenly everybody's going to Germany or living in Germany. All these people start to be living in Germany and making a living at this. So that was uh, really, really interesting. And that gave it a shot in the arm, it gave it an energy which is still running in Weimar and places yeah, like and that. I think actually and there are still these bands from Finland and wherever yeah. uh, that are doing um, this music as a, as a cool or interesting uh, music and as Jewish without being Zionist, which would be particularly useful in a European context where Zionism is toxic. Um, so uh, it still has that charge of being usable. And in the places like Sweden, according to uh, Kaminsky in his articles, Klezmer works because it's sort of like an exotic, nice music, but it's not Islamic. It's not for the uh, Islamic uh, world because uh -huh. Islamic stuff is deeply suspect now all over Europe, and you don't want to be seen partying with those people or playing their music. is not as hip as it was in the 80s when right. it was quite hip. But Klezmer is kind of a cool music like that, and it's kind of safe because you can't fault Jews, you know, kind of you know, in a way, they're, <laughs> right. they're kind of, you know, they're not terrorists, they may be, as long as it's not Israeli. So even the European situation goes through its, its changes, uh, but yes. the world music kind of sensibility gave it a, a, a second wind. To get back to your story though, right. you said you moved away from Klezmer back then, but what were some of the, what were some of the lessons or maybe like theories that you kind of developed by, through your study of Klezmer or Yiddish music that have stayed with you or that you've used in other contexts? Um, it's looking at, um, well, look, my whole career from, I found out I've always done the same thing my whole life. I did in Afghanistan, I'm still doing it today in, in all kinds of ways. Um, which is to look at societies that have small moving parts, um, you know, music, music, societies that have music and small musics within them. And the most uh, used and thing that I'm most known for is a small book of ethnomusicology theory uh, called Subcultural Sounds, uh, where I theorize this issue, take United States, you know, take a Western European country. You have um, an overarching system that everybody knows, which is popular music, national music, and things that everybody has to know. Then you have a lot of micromusics. And uh, theorizing how micromusics work within a larger context, I was doing that actually even in Afghanistan. 
um, looking at the whole society and the subcultural systems within the society. That's my bent. I look, I see those patterns everywhere I go. So I saw Klezmer as a particularly fascinating and vibrant uh, micromusic um, within an American system and even within an American Jewish system. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's always very interesting uh, to me and, and it was very stimulating to use that example because it's so particularly problematic, the lack of the homeland, the double, the multiple diasporic nature of the thing um, just intensifies all those issues about um, affinity. I, so I, I theorized there the idea of affinity groups where people are drawn into something that they have no relationship to, which happens musically every day. Um, people are just simply, I was just talking to someone about the, you know, the Balkan music in America syndrome. Uh, you know, you hear this music and you say, that's what I need to do the rest of my life. Yeah. It just happens to people. And we can't explain that if something goes on in the brain. Um, and um, so there's the affinity thing, which is the Europeans playing it and other Americans and a lot of people in Canada who are not actually having grown up in Jewish communities. Um, that gives it a certain energy in life all the time, Klesmer. And so for, as a way of working out affinity, it's interesting because it doesn't have to do then with heritage uh, or with any exoticism really even or orientalism or some other or African issue, you know, like a lot of other issues that affinity gets uh, inveigled with don't necessarily happen in the, with something like Klezmer. So it's been interesting for affinity issues, for looking at how micromusical systems work, how the official, def, how, def, how the world music system works, uh, and, but particularly how individuals work. Um, because, you know, Fiddle on the Move, the first one chapter is heritage. The second one is personal. How did people get into this? Uh, yeah. Which I call Klezmer as an urge. Certainly and people are drawn magnetically, that's yeah. the affinity thing, or they come to it by personal pathways through classical, through whatever. Um, or there's marketing. This is the music I can go to weddings and play. Uh, and uh, they pick up the repertoire. You know. So I talk about those issues. Um, uh, now, it's interesting, though, the chapter that was Klezmer as community, um, it was still an issue then. There were places, towns, everybody wanted to have a Klezmer band, the use of Klezmer. The Jewish community moved away from some of what's in that chapter now. That book was, came out in 2000, it's about the 90s, mid late 90s uh, situation. That's yeah. why I noticed that that kind of sort of declined as a phenomenon at some point. So that chapter is, uh, um, is interesting. interesting. In my experience, and this is actually starting maybe in the last year or so, at least in my circle, it's starting to move back, which oh, is interesting. But it's yeah. coming from, you know, it's still coming from a very left-wing political perspective oh, okay. because okay. this music, as it has always since the revival, provided a way to sort of have a, a diasporic musical Jewish right. Right. life or, or even just a diasporic general Jewish connection, which I think certain groups of people are looking for. And it's not... And some people who are really want to embrace, they just want a bigger picture of... Right. We are. I mean, I think, and I think about klezmer bands in Israel, like Hillik Frank or something, who I actually would love to uh, connect to and haven't had the chance to hear live or something. And just even even there, and how that's changed. Um, well, it had to be imported to Israel too from America. You know, and this is very odd. So it doesn't even have a homeland in the so-called Jewish homeland. Um, it's it's a very very. I mean, yeah, I've always been fascinated by Klezmer. But I love what you said about yeah. micromusics because I yeah. also feel very drawn to micromusics. One, uh, this is completely off the yeah, topic, yeah. but one, I, my friends say that I keep finding my way into like being like in the, the top guy in these completely tiny niches that doesn't right. make any sense. So well, like, yeah, nice. uh, you know, I'm a Klezmer trombone guy. That's right. pretty rare. Uh, the I've found my way to be a trombone person who records on a bunch of like heavy metal albums. Right. And that's, that's a really small, but it's just, there's these connect, for me it's all about sonic connections and you can hey. take one thing, you yeah. know, so I was able to take Hasidic Nagunim and this really slow version of extremely loud metal and they sounded the same. Right. Somebody decided to use a harmonic scale sometime in their life and, uh, and suddenly you have a crossover point that you can make and then people start to hear it and um, and it, it, but there and there's a way of sort of doing this multicultural thing, but without having to switch in the same way as we used to. Well, like, but that's the you're being a klezmer. Yeah, how about that? Right, you're being a klezmer. I mean, I remember there was one point I uh, talking to Kurt Beerling 
He said, I'm not a klezmer, I, you know, I'm not a klezmer. If I were a klezmer, I'd be playing all kinds of music and, you know, doing all kinds of gigs and learning all kinds of things. That's what a klezmer would do. I never do that. I only play this music, this one yeah. music that I like, so I'm, I'm not really a klezmer. But that, that's very straight, that's true, uh, in a way. It's, it's just, it's amazing <laughs> what you can, and what you can draw from the, uh, from this, from this music, and I mean, what we've been able to draw from, or what I've been right. able to draw from, and it sounds like you too, even in ethnomusicology, I mean, was there a specific one where you felt like, wow, I really learned this in Klezmer, and now, because I'm actually also thinking a lot these days about what, what lessons can we bring to the wider public? Oh, right. I mean, I've thought a lot about this with jazz, for instance, because, right, I've always had a really good relationship with standards uh -huh. personally, and it uh -huh. comes from growing up and listening to musical theater and stuff. Right. But I also don't find to ha like I have the I have to reject something in order to do be who I am. Right. And that's something about that I. Well, think that's is a luxury. A, it is a luxury. It's an American luxury of uh -huh. your your generation and beyond. That we, um, yeah. I mean, every not everybody's had those choices, and most of the world they don't. Right. You can get killed for doing the wrong music in many countries today. Mm. Um, so it is a total uh, taken for granted privilege of kind of, you know, not just white, but other musicians who live in these liberal democracies. Um, you know, look at Freemuse sometime. Freemuse.org is based in Denmark and it clocks, it tracks on a daily basis the oppression and suppression of music of musicians in the world. Hmm. And every day it's another country and then every day it's another issue and some musician who can't just decide, I'm gonna play that now and I'm gonna do this another way and I want to have a really funny text about this and that without literally being killed or imprisoned or having their instruments taken away. Um, I mean, so it's not normal in a sense to be this able to enjoy and to play. Um, now, for the old klezmer, um, it was a necessity. That's the only way you could make a buck, okay? You did it because you did it because you had to. If there was a job, you had to take that job. It meant you had to learn how to play for Ukrainians or you had to go to the guys, the Polish Pans uh, Chateau and play Paganini for him. You had to learn like, how the hell do I play that stuff? And you took lessons and, and ordered music by mail and got a teacher because there might be a gig playing, you know, chamber music for the guy in his palace. Um, so you did it. Um, now, that's not sort of the luxury of play and being ludic and all the kind of things you're talking about that you're enjoying. Right. Um, that's, that's survival. You know? Yeah, we're not. That's eclecticism that as survival, not as personal play and fulfillment, you know. I think there's people who uh, still sort of treat the music in that way, but in general, what I'm personally interested in is people who are using who are using the sounds and like the techniques of this music to right. figure out new ways. And also, I'm interested in like, how we've sort of developed this pretty like mature way of communicating musical information, especially non-notated musical information right. that's pretty good. You're drawing on the experimental tradition. And we're drawing the, on the experimental the tradition I mean, Zorn really set this in motion. I know. By, you know, you're doing what he did. Let's see what we can do with a rock band and call it Masada. I mean, what a ridiculous chutzpah to call it. Well, he's, he's Al, got to call that. was labeled Tzadik. I mean, who is this guy? And to call his label Masada, I mean, his band Masada. That, that was sort of like in your face, you know? Yeah. Uh, but they have emphatically rejected anything remotely smelling of Klezmer because they were doing something different. Yeah. But it ends up being resources for you as a Klezmer, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's another resource you can use. Or uh, at least in, in, right. it's actually just a resource I'm coming around to trying yeah. to use now. Yeah. And I've spent the last, yeah. you know, 14 years trying to develop something with all the other resources that have been sort of unused or I felt were underused at that point. Right. What's your connection to like the klezmer scene these days? Do you feel like you're still keeping track of what's happening? You kind of just moved on. Well, you know, once you're in something like this, I mean, here I am, right? I've been brought, yeah, good I've, been, point. I've actually been brought here. Um, so, uh, I keep, sure, I keep connections. I see these people, I talk to them. I love seeing, you know, Michael and Zev and Hankus. And I mean, you know, I was Hankus Nesky's dissertation advisor. So that sure immersed me in the, uh, in, in the world of what was going on here and how to study it right. and uh, what are the methods you might use for it. So no, I, I keep in touch because I love being in touch with the things that I've been in touch with and uh, seeing how they're, you know, how they're developing. It's, it's, it's really cool. And I'm just so impressed now with the young wave of 
people who were working at the highest artistic level, like Dan uh, Khan and uh, Sasha Lurian, I mean, a whole lot of people that are just very high level musicians and thinkers um, that are doing, I, I, it seems to me there's a nice new period coming in for this music uh, and, and hopefully they'll be able to expand the market or you know, expand the presence of this in, in other places. Uh, uh, and so many, so many interesting experimental uh, projects uh, in using Yiddish, you know, uh, as a vehicle. Uh, there, there's, uh, Josh Wolecki's new album is just stunning. Uh, and he's writing these wonderful new songs that could be as good as whatever, you know. So it's not like it dies out or goes away, it's just a question, how many people will hear it? What will they appreciate it? Where does this go? That's a problem. And I think it's a problem for this music to get out of the micro uh, and into some more of a macro uh, consciousness, the way it briefly had in the 80s or maybe the 90s, um, you know, being on Prairie Home Companion or somehow being mainstream. Um, it's, it's pretty niche um, within certain kinds of small art worlds, as we call them. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't be doing really good music. I agree completely. And I actually <laughs> think that that's a perfect place to uh, right. wrap up. Okay. And, uh, and yeah. we can really be thankful for places like Klez Canada, where we get to be our Absolutely. niche selves and have right. and explore and test out new ideas and do sure. all these things. Sure. Uh, so this is great. So let's just, at the moment, thank Mark Slobin for being okay. here. Thank you. Well, that does it for today's episode. That was my conversation with Mark Slobin. He's pretty cool. He's a pretty cool guy. One of the things that I really appreciated about it was that he's figured out a way to be really theoretical and deep with his research and rigorous, but also be really passionate and include a lot of himself in there too at the same time. So that's really cool. That's something I respect a lot. Maybe it's no wonder that we're both sort of attracted to this klezmer music. Anyway, that's it for this week. This time, there will definitely be two weeks off before the next episode, which is going to feature the great band Varetsky Pass. They're my favorites, and they just do such great work, so I can't wait to share that conversation with you. Again, if you're around Philadelphia, come out to the Ethical Society on Sunday at 7 p.m., we're going to play some music from the CD, and then we're going to open it up into a klezmer dance party. We got some, we got me, we got Nick Milavoy from the CD, we've got special guest Dave Licht coming in on drums, we've got dance leader Steve Weintraub coming in. It's going to be awesome. So I hope you can join us. And, uh, yeah. So, until next time, good Shabbos. <laughs>